Jim Roberts from Booksend. Booksend in Syracuse, New York. Yes. And you've uh, owned the bookstore for almost 20 years. Almost 20 years. The, the bookstore actually existed before us. There were a few different sets of owners. Right. Um, but I went to work for the previous owner for about a year. And she wasn't really serious about running a bookstore. It was more something to do uh, while her husband worked and while they awaited. Uh, they were looking to adopt, and they were waiting. They were on a list. And they got the call, and when she got the call, she sold the bookstore to me. And that was in 1987. And we're still here. That's an accomplishment in itself. As I drove around a bit downtown, I was just admiring some absolutely gorgeous buildings. But then, as I say, there's like lots of parking lots around them. And right. Uh, <laughs> as I say, it's, it's almost like maybe the city had seen its its glory days uh, 50 years maybe prior, or 100 years ago. And then it's sort of, uh, what was it? Was it, uh, it well, lumber? It's or salt. What? It's called the Salt City. That's still its nickname. The latter part of the... 19th century and in the early part of the 20th century, there was a huge business in, in salt. And it's also, because Syracuse is somewhat central to upstate New York... It sort of a hub, then? Uh, in that sense, the, in the old days, plus the Erie Canal, even earlier than the 20th century, the Erie Canal runs right through Syracuse, so uh, 19th century, it was a, a big port. And you see old pictures of, of downtown, and, you know, what are streets now were water. Back then, that was where the canal was, the, filled in most of it. But. That explains it then, yeah. And then the salt just dried up? I mean, yeah, apparently, what, what, yeah. I mean, I, they ran out of the, the, the salt, salt mines. Yeah, they were, and that was it, yeah. Hmm. There's an interesting book that's been written about the history of salt in the last couple of years. Syracuse comes in for a mention somewhere in the book, I think. And have you spent your entire life in Syracuse? No, I have not. I grew up in Binghamton, which is not that far away. Okay. Uh, it's about an hour and a half to the south. And then I lived on Long Island for six or seven years in Manhattan, okay. which is where I met my wife. And then we moved to Syracuse because she had a, a career move. And I came up here not knowing what I was going to do. I you know, had haunted used bookstores through my whole youth and was a collector. And I was interested even then in the, the business aspect of it. And I got a part-time job working for the previous owner of this store. And just about the same time that I did that, there was a store in Binghamton called Lescrons, which was an old book warehouse kind of store. They got remainders, they got hearts, and they had used books. And they went out of business. And they had an auction on all of their things. So we went down. And by the time the auction happened, they'd had their going out of business sale. There really wasn't all that much left. But uh, we decided just for sport we bought a huge lot of books for you know what turned out to be something like a half a penny a piece mm -hmm. and uh, from working for the previous owner here for a couple of months we had discovered the A.B. Bookman's Weekly and I don't know if you know mm -hmm. what that is but uh, that was the way that you sold used books you know outside of your locality back then so we bought that 
giant pile of books with the thought of that we would quote them in the AV and so forth. And that's what really got me started. Maybe just for the benefit of our listeners, you could give us a quick, uh, the AB, would have been a, it would have been a magazine that went out to collectors. And to collectors and to book dealers. Dealers, yeah. Um, who, who were obviously collecting on behalf of their patrons. Correct. It really had sort of three components, the magazine. There was the editorial part of the magazine. There usually were very interesting articles on, not so much on price guides and values, but more on the collecting world and on rare books. There was a section in the back of 30 or 40 pages, uh, which were almost mini catalogs. Book dealers would put an ad in there selling books. And that was the part that appealed greatly to collectors. Uh, I've heard stories of you know people bribing their mailman to get the magazine a day earlier than other people got <laughs> so that they would get the first crack at the books that were for sale. And for book dealers, there was the middle section, which was about 60 or 70 pages of triple-columned want ads from dealers that their customers were looking for books, and these were the ones they were looking for. And as a book dealer, you would read this magazine, and if you had what a copy of what they were looking for, you would s- send them a handwritten quote in the mail, and the book dealer would assemble all their quotes together and pick the best one. A much slower version of the mm-hmm. internet, in a sense. Um, well, basically, it seemed to have been the, the ballywick of the book dealer, whereas now it's it's been opened up to a much larger audience of people who are interested in purchasing books. And previously, they would have had to subscribe to this magazine, but now anyone can go onto the web for free. Correct. And and really, this magazine, if you weren't in the book business, you know, it would have been horrific to read through these 70 pages of one ads of to find out what people were looking for. But, uh, but being in the business, of course, this is money, so it's, it's kind of exciting Absolutely. to go through it. Absolutely. You never knew what you were going to find when you read these ads. And we would sell, probably from each issue, we might sell 40 or 50 books a week through the mail. Now, is that publication online now? Is it still in business? Or? I don't believe it's in business. You hear rumors once in a while that they're sort of trying to make a comeback, but the Internet really took the w- the wind right out of their sails. They did not. Which is kind of, sa- kind of sad and almost not much showing uh, much savvy on their part because their publication would have been perfectly uh, suited for the Internet. Absolutely. Uh, it's one of the mysteries of the business that they were not really ahead of the curve. But uh, ABE books, issue. ABE books basically filled that that space. I actually think the original business was, uh, if you've heard of Alibris, mm-hmm. uh, there was an earlier version of Alibris called Interlock, and they were really the first people who gathered book dealers together under one website and mm-hmm. sold books that way. Uh, I believe they were first. We started with them in about 1997, and I believe they'd been in business for a couple of years beforehand. You know, they probably started off with 25 or 30 dealers who took the risk, and by the time... Well, how did they take the risk? Well, they were paying money to be online, and there was at that point no real evidence that anyone was ever going to look for books online that way. And, and it's funny when it, you would consider that it was risky then because now, in retrospect, the Internet is the perfect venue for used book dealers. It's, um, 
It's a merit made in heaven. Yeah, I mean, the exponential growth, who, who could have mm-hmm. predicted, uh, I suppose. But, I mean, in terms of a risk, I can't imagine that they would have cost them that much to put their books up on that site. I don't think it was a... It was Maybe it was the time involved. There's always the time involved. There still is the time involved. If you're selling books online, you still have to do data entry. It was a, a much cruder version. You had to buy this giant program that you had to install into your computer, and it was a DOS program. And the whole process was not as simple. I mean, I think originally you had to send your uploads to them on these huge floppy disks, but not the little ones that you can still get, the three-inch, you know, these things were like seven or eight inches, and, you know, and there was a system even where you even mailed them in, I think. By the time we, by the time we got uh, involved, you didn't have to do that. You had, you could do it uh, over a phone line, you know, you still had to have the phone modem at that point. They, they didn't go on the internet, per se, mm-hmm. until they became a Libris. So why did ABE Books blow a Libris out of the water then? I think the jury is still out on that personally. Um, When Interlock became a Libris they were the first to begin selling books the way almost all the sites do now which was that well actually now that I think about it it was even even more complicated than that. When they became a Libris what they did was eliminate the book dealer's name off the website which they sort of still do. And everything you were buying, you were buying from a Libris. Mm -hmm. But what they did, say I was selling a book for $25, they marked the price up, and that's where their profit was. Um, So if I was selling it for $25, they were selling it to the customer for $35. Mm -hmm. Where on Abe, book dealers were selling their books, and the price that the book dealer was selling them for was what the customer was paying. And I think customers very quickly learned that Libris was just a more expensive site. That'll do it every time. In this business. In every business. Yeah, price, price, price. Libris has since changed their their business plan, and and they do it differently. But it took them a while. And and while they were still holding on to, to that price markup theory, you know, Abe was gathering dealers by the thousands. And again, the other thing too was that Abe was uh, wasn't uptight about the fact that if you know if someone online wanted to visit that book dealer directly, uh, the book dealer's name was there and right. contact information and uh, you know ask a question of the bookseller and all that type of stuff. Yes, so that, that, uh, it was a much more comfortable site back then. People want to deal with the book dealer. I don't think they they want to deal through a. Well, we've always got question. Anyone who's a collector, I suppose people you know those weirdos that just want to go read the book. <laughs> they don't care where they get it from, or but I mean, if you collect it, and you want to, and you're, con- you're interested in the condition and etc. Then and to make sure it's a first printing, and yeah, and and when you get into antiquarian things, you know, with points and with, you know, condition becomes much more important. And interlock uh, Libris at that point just was not really set up for that purpose. They made it very difficult for the customer to get to the to the book dealer. Yeah, they obviously didn't understand the uh, the customer. They were perhaps going after the people that we were talking about. They just, you know, anyone who wants to get the book, the title's hard to get a hold of, bang, here it is, and here's the price. Whereas uh, Abe seemed to be perhaps more aware of the fact that there are a lot of potential customers out there that, that really do enjoy the exchange and uh, with the, the book seller directly. Yeah, I think Alibris forgot 
how the process works, and they forgot. The people who, who are looking for used books and rare books and collectors, they're not consumers in that sense, so that it doesn't matter what the book looks like, they just want a reading copy. They, you know, yeah. they're getting it as a gift, so it has to be new, whatever. But, you know, the people who are visiting that those sites, A, believers, uh, or at least a great number of them, were more serious collectors. And um, they needed to be able to trust that what they saw on the Internet was what they were getting. And I think Alibris made them uncomfortable in that aspect. Then, when you add on top of that, the fact that they were adding a markup to the, to the, for the same book, and, and um, most of us, I'm sure, sold on both sites at the time. So, you know, they would find your book on, a, on Abe for $20, and they would find the exact same book with the exact same description on Alibris for more. Why would you order it from Alibris? So right now, then, what percentage of your business is through the net? Through the net, probably about 60%. And uh, how has that changed in the last, say, five years ago, what was it? 20%. Is that right? Now, having a bookstore, a lovely bookstore, I might add, I just... Thank you. I I think I probably bought about 20 books here just (laughs) now. (laughs) We encourage that sort of behavior. (laughs) Sure you do. Uh, it's going to cost me more to drive home because <laughs> of the weight in the back trunk. But, uh, anyway, um, the fact that you're here in Syracuse, and we've had this brief discussion about uh, the Syracuse. It's not a thriving American city. It, it's seen its heyday. We're in the half a million oh. range, so you know, but it, shrinking. It, it's shrinking, yes. Uh, I guess that's what I was getting at. But thankfully, your business isn't shrinking because you can now... Uh, Put your stuff up on that, and anyone around the world can get it. Is that is that the case, or is it that's bi- correct? Yeah, yeah. So I, your business is growing. Yes, you know it has its ups and downs, obviously, but our business grew exponentially from the day that we started selling on the internet. Yeah. You know, if we graphed a, a chart, the line would head seriously north in about 1998, which is when we started to sell books in earnest over the. You have a lovely university here. Mm-hmm. It's quite a big university, right? It's 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 fairly large. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. and there's some some important writers. I noticed that George Saunders. George Saunders is here now. We've had Carver, Raymond Carver, for quite a while. Yeah. Uh, Tobias Wolf taught here for a while. Stephen Dobbins taught for a while. Um, so over the years, Tess Gallagher, Raymond Carver's wife, was here. Uh, over the years, it's attracted a pretty good. Um, a, a nice stable of of writers. Do you get a lot of libraries from profs that you can do? Do you purchase them, or what's the source? Is the source pretty good here for interesting stuff? It's not bad because Syracuse is an old city and by, was by at one time a wealthy city. Yes, there's families that have lived here for generations and generations. So, over the years, you know, we've been able to acquire part or all of some fairly large family collections, and it allows being in the Northeast as opposed to perhaps being in the Southwest, and this is just guesswork for me, you're more likely to find a collection that's 150 years old here. The university gives us uh, a good source of books. We have bought quite a few, you know, libraries of uh, different professors over the years, and students as well uh, often sell their books, so that, that helps too. I wouldn't call it the cornerstone of the business, but it's certainly a, a nice plus to live in Syracuse. What is the cornerstone of the business? 
I just think regular people. Um, you mean um, when you're talking the uh, non-internet stuff, you mean? <laughs> but even as a source for books, book collectors come from all walks of life. I don't necessarily think they're all academics by any stretch of the imagination. One of my best customers and sources of books is a man who worked for 20 years in a factory, you know, until he had to quit because they worked with asbestos and he got asbestosis. But he's a brilliant collector. You know, he's the kind of collector that would walk into a book sale of 10,000 books and his eye would go to the one, you know, terrific book in the room. He sold us a, a collection of Custer books, which was probably one of the biggest collections of, of Custer material in the world when he sold it to us. So, and he, um, he accumulated that over, as you say, over, over the years, just having, years having a good eye. Running around and collecting and spending yeah. every weekend Wonderful. hunting and looking through catalogs of Western Americana. It's, uh, I love the... Uh, you know, the the contrast or the comparison between the academic, mm-hmm. who has a, quote, a professional interest in, in books, and then the amateur in the in the best sense of the word. I mean, this man, it seems to me, you, you, your voice is, is, uh, is full of admiration when you speak of him. He's not, uh, and he, he doesn't have to be. Who the hell says you have to be an academic? Or, you know, he's, he's probably right. no more knowledgeable about the about his field of interest than anyone else in the world. and uh, I'm sure he knows his Custer history as well as any number of Custer scholars who have made a living writing or teaching about uh, that period. And he's completely self-taught. Yeah. I'm sure he did not get his master's in American history somewhere. You know, I think I'd much rather talk to him than to a, to a professor. Well, I think there's room for both. I wouldn't want to insult uh, the academic world either, but he certainly brings no pretension to the to the conversation, just a passion. Yeah. You mentioned Custer, uh, the American collector. It's not really something that I've, we've, we've looked at to great depth uh, on the program at, uh, to this point, but Civil War and uh, Frontier... This must be a, a really, really a president's because of the the patriotism. Is this is this one of the key collecting areas for your countrymen? Do you think? I would guess yes. You would just guess? Yeah, I, just from you know, I don't, I can't speak for the whole country. I can't speak for what other book dealers. But you do can speak to what sells, though. I can speak to what sells for us, and, and we do a very good business in in military history, and specifically American military history, World War II, not so much World War I, but the American Revolution and the Civil War. And so any particular authors that, that, that are particularly sought after, or genres? Um, you mentioned these areas, but anything, can you get a bit more specific? I'm not sure it gets more specific. I mean, I'm sure that within the thousands of different private collections, there are people... For instance, in the Civil War, there would be, you know, there are certainly people who are only interested in the unions side of things. People who, you know, in the South who are interested in the Confederacy, and and often those kinds of collections, the twain do not meet. It's surprising for me, as an as a neophyte, to learn that there was an enormous interest in in reference works on those fields that listed the names of the soldiers in each regiment and each unit because uh, 
there's genealogical history in all of those. So there were there were actually books that were published, book bound books published that, uh, that oh, yes. contained uh, almost probably list on lists. on every regiment and every unit and every division, yeah. in in certainly in the Civil War, in World War One, in World War Two. Uh, so each one of the divisions themselves would sort of take it upon themselves to do this, or is this sort of a military? The army would. This was a, something that they were obliged to do? Or? I think a little bit of both. Uh -huh. uh, by the time you got to World War II, most of the um, division histories or unit histories uh, were usually undertaken under the rubric of that division. You know, when you, when you get them, they're published by the division, or certainly they're published with the cooperation. And often those, they, they came very fast. You know, usually in the late 40s is when most of those histories were printed and it was all about what they had done in on the, the war. heels of the actual so end of the war war the, yeah and so therefore they were done with the cooperation of the military so the military but may have provided them with a, a small budget then to to pay a, a local uh, you know, members of the division to write their own, their own division's history then really. correct yes and 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 possibly pay to have them bound up in in editions of uh, they they weren't printed in large numbers um, which makes them so collectible. I right. Think. So I think they were often collected by the people within the division. Yeah. And, and as time has gone on, they've become collectible to the ancestors or the, the, of the people in, in the divisions. You know, your father was there. And, um, Would they be leather-bound or not? Usually not. They're usually cloth-bound. Cloth -bound. Usually with some sort of pictorial cover with the unit's insignia. What do you mean pictorial cover? You mean uh, the dust jacket or the actual Well, if they had, itself? sometimes they had dust jackets, sometimes they didn't. It would either be on the cloth, on the boards, or on the dust jacket. Was there any particular uh, publisher that, that specialized in this, or was it all sort of private press stuff? Well, I think the government printed a lot of them. You know, the, the GPO, the government printing office, uh, was the original publisher and some of them, for whatever reasons, whether they were in more interesting battles, perhaps, or something, then you would start to see some of the mainstream publishers uh, pick them up. There wasn't really one publisher that did them. Perhaps I don't know whether, again, whether they were just a little better written, a little, you know, they went into a little bit more in depth. Because these are all sort of amateur undertakings. Written by people who weren't who were necessarily writers, writers yeah. but who were actually there, perhaps, or had family members or mm -hmm. eyewitnesses or whatever. Yeah. But then sending this stuff, you say, to the government for printing, would, would all these little divisions all around the, the, the states send this uh, to Washington to get printed up, or were there different uh, printers across the country, or what? I don't, that I don't know the answer yeah. to. As far as I know, they would, you know, the government printing office would be responsible for publishing them. They come with the Washington, D.C., you know, that's listed as to where they're published. That's not always where they're printed, though. Right, right. Particularly the Civil War unit histories and regimental histories, there's a great demand for them, and they have become fairly expensive, you know, several hundred dollars apiece, because they've now become quite scarce, most of them. Right. Well, again, it's always lovely to have family heirloom, family keepsakes, mm -hmm. isn't it? I mean, Yes, one of my worst horror stories that, that, that comes from this business is that we had a woman who came in once with about ten boxes of books that she was looking to sell.
and she thought that the books that she was going to sell me were, you know, were going to make her quite wealthy. And they were book club editions of just popular novels from the, from the 30s and 40s. Most of them didn't have their dust jackets. I really, I didn't buy a single one. And she shook her head, and she was very surprised. And then she told me had, that there was another batch of books that her husband had collected, but she couldn't imagine that anybody would want them, so she had thrown them into the dumpster in the apartment building she lived in. It was just all these books from around the Civil War, and it seemed like they had nothing but the lists of the soldiers that were in. You know, and she said, I have 70 or 80. He well, had did 70 you, or 80 of those. I didn't have the heart to tell her that that's where the money was, but you know, I... Yes, I thought for a minute, you know, when did you throw those out? I was going to say, yeah, just, just jump in the car and get <laughs> over there. <laughs> Put my scuba gear on and dive into the dumpster and go looking for them, but she said she had thrown them out months ago. Uh, yeah, it's, it's painful, eh? That kind of information, is the, the fact that, as you say, this, this lovely man who had the Coster collection, uh, who could go into a huge book sale and just quickly pick out the gems... Uh, that, no, that kind of knowledge isn't that widespread, obviously, you know, that people just don't know where the value resides often. There is a, a certain level of instinctiveness in our business that if you don't have, I don't, I'm not sure you can ever be completely successful in this business. One of the interesting things about the Internet is that it has sort of democratized knowledge in that it used to be that you had to work in this business for for 20 or 30 years even then you only knew you know a smidgen but at least you had gained that smidgen of knowledge where now the internet sort of provides everybody if you know where to look and know how to look it's a complaint that i know a number of booksellers have have come up with and that is previously uh, it was a specialized knowledge on what certain books were worth and now you just pop up on the net and you've got an edition of the same thing you see a respected dealer, what they're asking, and you, you lop 15% off and pop it up. Uh, on one hand, that complaint certainly has merit in repeating just what I said, in that it used to be that you had to do the legwork and do the hard work, and you don't anymore. At the same time, I, I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing that people it's are a good aware thing for of, of what things are worth. Yeah. Well, it's, it saves being you know, it's consumers being gouged, I guess. That's right, because I think, and as part of the business, uh, I hope I'm not insulting anyone when I say it, but I think there was a piece of this business 25 years ago that encompassed just that, where book dealers knew the book wasn't that rare, but they had a, a pretty copy of it, and it wasn't something that you see every day, and they could put a sort of outlandish price on it, and Hopefully they could convince somebody yeah. to, to buy it. Yeah, um, I mean, they, again, they could say, yes, this book is worth this amount of money, and, and who's, gonna, who's going to be able to, check, to call them on that? Correct. I don't necessarily think that it's a bad thing overall that the Internet has forced everyone to be a bit more honest about yeah. what they have. At the same time, what hasn't come along yet, I think, is the ability of people to pay attention to more than just price. I mean, the lopping the 15% off, well, that's swell if it's a $1,000 book and you're going to pay $150 less for it. But it's also possible that that $1,000 copy is substantially better than the $850 copy. Well, yeah, I mean, we've got a certain terminology, you know, mm -hmm. fine and uh, near fine and very good. But, yeah, I mean, those are so, th those are subjective. Very much so. And so some people, some dealers are, are much more stringent in their 
labeling a book fine mm-hmm. versus versus others, and that's something that's quite difficult to police unless you have you know you have to go through the hassle of getting the copy back and seeing that this isn't near fine. It's right. it's, it's much less than that. Yeah, that's the part of the business that the internet has changed for the for the worse. Basically, um, it's uh, like you you walk in the, you can't walk in the door of all these book dealers. Otherwise, you know exactly what you're getting true. before you purchase it. There are so many less open use bookshops. That's um, the sad thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's taken a lot of books off the visual marketplace, as it were, and. Um, but the part that, that I'm unhappy about is that there are a lot of people who sell books on the Internet now who haven't done the hard work beyond the price. You know, they haven't learned about points. They haven't learned about condition. They haven't learned how to describe their trade. books. Correct. They just, a hundred-year-old first edition is n- nothing more to them than a, a baseball card. Yeah, you know? or, I mean, it's sort of or a potato. The same way. Yeah, exactly. I think that's how Peter Ellis. <laughs> that's a potato. Not bad. It, 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 <laughs> you can't squeeze the <laughs> the potato to see if it's ripe on the internet. And and so I, my worry now is that 25 years ago, people were, might perhaps were being gouged on the price by some unscrupulous dealers or some unknowledgeable dealers. Now they're being gouged in more important ways. They're not getting. They're not even getting first editions anymore. They're not. They're it's the next caveat emptor, though. Let's face it. It really is. It's buyer beware. On each transaction, yes. Overall, though, what's missing now is that the used book world used to be a place that you could go, and if you bought from a dealer who sold in the AB Bookman's Weekly to, to bring our conversation back to that. You knew that you were dealing with a dealer who was reputable or knew what they were doing. And so you at least knew that when a book was described as very good condition, mm, in a very was. good dust jacket, and this, you know, the spine was sunned or something like that, you knew that you were getting what you were being told you were getting, and you knew that they hadn't left out But that, isn't that the role anything. now that the associate, that the, you know, the booksellers associations play? I mean, you have to sign, a, you know, a, a, some sort of an agreement of... Um, ethical code of, of standard and behavior. So I think that's the cachet behind, what is it, ABAA? Or ABAA, which we are not a member of, by the way. But I mean, as a, as a, as a customer, uh, if I see a book on the internet and I see it at pretty well the same price, I'm going to buy the one with the ABAA just simply because well, it says right in their standards that they're not, you know, they're not supposed to BS, and if they do, then they're, you know, there's going to be absolutely no problem getting the money back, e- even though there's the hassle. Yeah, but it's that hassle, I think, that I worry about. If there's enough people out there who, you know, are buying books from either ignorant or unscrupulous dealers, and they constantly have to send it back because they, mm-hmm. you said it was a first printing, but it's a 15th printing, or you said, yeah. you know, that it was fine, but it's an ex-library copy, and the dust jacket's glued to the book. You know, how many times do you have to do that before you sort of throw up your hands and say, well, I'm just not even going to bother with this process anymore. I worry that we're driving collectors out of the field because there are people who are making it too difficult, and, mm-hmm. you know, they've been there one too many times. I know I had that sort of experience early on with eBay. I, I, I kept mm. getting stuff that was just not as described, and it was very annoying. You can't keep a collector, a good collector I guess a, a serious collector, you they're can't. going to keep going. Yeah. Well, I think what you do is you want to look for, 
with the dealers that you, you establish a relationship with a dealer that uh, you know when they something say something that that's an accurate description and uh, that's I think you just have to kind of go through a few and I think that's starting to happen now on the internet I think that after an initial period and, and I think these last four five six years have been that period when so many more people got home computers and discovered the internet and discovered these sites and so they've it's been through maybe it's sort of wild west phase of <laughs> every man for Cowboys. himself yeah, yeah. And that now i think people are starting to realize the value of limiting the dealers that you deal with the people that you trust and respect and have had good dealings with in the past and that it's worth yeah, they're not a certain the amount of money to deal with yeah. with those people I hope that's happening. Well, again, as you say, so, so maybe moving away just to just specifically from price, but to as you say, to service. And I hope that's and trust. Happening. Yeah, just uh, to wind up, the internet's obviously been very, very good to you. There are some fairly significant changes that have been in the wind in the last uh, year with uh, ABE. As I understand it, the, the book seller uh, at one point was paying. Uh, in the neighborhood of one and a half to two and a half percent for maybe you could just tell me exactly your experience because it's and the, it's gone up right the change that well over the last few years uh, Abe has they have always charged you a certain amount of money to list your books and that seems quite fair 30 40 50 yeah. 80 bucks a month the more you list the yeah. more you pay right then they started to take five uh, percent of the sale on top of that, so if you sold a book for a hundred dollars on Abe, you know you still process the customer's credit card, but you owed Abe five dollars for your hundred dollar book, and they would they had your credit card on file, and they would once a month they would tote up whatever it was that you owed them and charge your credit card that. Uh, then about a year and a half ago, I think it went to eight percent, um, but you still process the customer's credit card, and now just recently, within the last few months. Uh, they've gone to a system where on top of that 8%, uh, they are processing all the customers' credit cards, or at least the Visa and MasterCard. I don't think they do. They have a deal with Discover or American Express or any of the other cards. And so on top of the 8% that they take, so if your $100 book now is, now they're taking $8. On top of that, they, they're processing the customers' credit card and charging you 5.5% of the entire sale that's uh, on top so, of the 8% so, that, so if your book is $100 and you've charged let's say $5 for shipping they're taking $8 out of the 100 out of the 8% of the book's price and they're taking 5.5% of $105 uh, to process the card so it's uh, now their response is just put your price up which doesn't seem fair on some level I guess but I guess that's the way a lot of businesses work. If you are selling milk and the farmer charges you more for the milk, then you've got to charge the customer more yeah. when you pay yeah. them. And, and I think it will inflate prices. It's, uh, you know, I think it will drive prices up. Well, the fact is that they've, they've snared you in there, or they've, they've got 10,000, 20,000 booksellers now on, the, on their site, a million, 50 million books or whatever. Uh, but let's say there's there's uh, twenty twenty thousand book sellers. Uh, they've all probably experienced some really good things, or m- many of them that are still there have obviously benefited from it. 
So what Abe's simply doing is saying, well, we've, you know, we've, we're providing this, this site, this mechanism for all these booksellers to make money. Uh, it's time for us to make a bit more. To a certain extent, I mean, I'm obviously not happy that they're taking more money. And there's actually an odd double whammy from it because all of us who process our credit cards get a certain rate from the bank based yeah. on the number of charges that you have and their average price. And by losing the Abe credit card charges on our card, we will probably we all losing end those up getting surcharged yeah. by the bank. Losing those number of transactions, and, and you will sometimes then have to go into a higher pr bracket. Right. So there's actually, well, you know, we're going to be punished again all in about a year when the banks reevaluate our, you know, our credit card records and see that we're just not them just not making as much money off of us, they're going to do the same thing. They're going to say, well, we need to make more money from you. Yeah. Um, the question in the end will be, can the market bear it? Anytime anybody, and Abe is no exception, raises their prices, which is what they've done, they've raised their price to us who supply the books that they sell. I would think there could come a time if they raise the price high enough that enough dealers will leave. And then it just becomes an avalanche effect because they've lost dealers, they're losing sales, they've got to charge you more, people that remain, and it, it could destroy their site. There's nothing stopping someone else from coming up with Abe's old business model and drawing us all there and making a success out of that. Time will tell whether it's just pure greed on their part or not, or whether it becomes the, the industry standard. I'm sure then they're not any happier about it than any of the rest of us. What about the future? You're happy? Happy doing what you're doing? You're making lots of money? Well, I'm making enough. Uh, you know, I'm not taking it home in a Brinks truck every day, but uh, I love what I do. I, can, I can't imagine at this point doing anything else. Um, so I'm in it for the long haul. You, what about the future of the industry? What's your, what's your take on it? I don't know. I, you know, you hear a lot of, um, you know, people, uh, doomsayers who say people aren't reading anymore, so they're not going to collect. I, I you know, I, the used book business isn't, you know, it's not Hollywood. You know, I mean, there's only, it's built into the business, isn't that you're not, not every American consumer or, or any consumer in the world, for that matter, is going to be interested in what you have. It's sort of a niche business to begin with, and I think as long as, you know, as, as people get into this business for the right reasons, because they love books, and they love literature, and they love knowledge, and they love collecting, and they love old books, I don't think it's ever going to go away. I think there may, it may thin out somewhat, but I, th I have a feeling this is just a guess, but I have a feeling that there's been a waxing and waning of the number of people doing this forever. And I think perhaps we're in a period right now when there's a lot more people selling books than there have been, and I suspect that in 20 years there will be less people doing it. But I would guess then that the people who are doing it 20 years from now will be the better dealers and the more knowledgeable dealers. So I think we'll be fine. Yeah, I think the other thing that's interesting too is that with the advent of the internet and the uh, possibility of e-books, that there may be a, a lovely sort of, a, not a nostalgic, but as time goes by, hopefully there will be an increased um, appreciation of the value of books that have been well constructed. That's a very good point, because it's a, a part of our business that isn't always discussed all the time, that it's more than the content of the book mm -hmm. that makes an old book interesting. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, let's hope that 50 years from now there are people who are interested in what a book looked like in 1850 and 1650, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. and 1998, you exactly. know, for that matter. Yeah. Some uh, of the great dust jackets. Yeah. 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 Well, thanks so much for your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking to Jim Roberts from Books End in Syracuse, New York.